are back for the Flanders edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm Abby Mickey, and joining me, as always, is Lauren Rowney. Lauren, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, feeling a bit rushed this morning. It must be that that jet lag from the time change still, but, you know. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> no, all good here. Um, we have winter again in Belgium. It was like, we have to talk about the weather, right? It's just... Oh, we're going to... We'll get into it for Shell Priest because that was This is how we this is how we started last year's Flanders exactly. We're talking about the weather. It's a theme. Uh, Amy Jones, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. I'm just finishing my first coffee, so I'll be with you very soon. <laughs> I really like your pink and gold mug. Oh thanks. It was a gift from a friend. My, because everyone thinks that because I ride bikes, bikes are the only things I like. I have this one. <laughs> bikes on it excellent you know i don't like that if you're a cyclist all of your people who know you they only get you bike related things because they're like you it's the only thing you like and you're like no no i like taylor swift a lot more (laughs) also joining us today for a very special guest appearance on the freewheeling podcast six months after her last guest appearance gracie elvin gracie how are you Hey, I'm going pretty well, thanks. On the other side of the fence. Yes, you're in Australia. We got Australia, Belgium, and Spain now. We're spread out a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I'm not drinking coffee. It's a little bit late for me to drink coffee right now, but um, maybe I'll have a cup of tea. <laughs> so should we just get straight into Flanders right away? To break down the race a little bit, we can have a conversation about this because Amy and I already, it seems like we have differing opinions, <laughs> but... It was really aggressive the first chunk of the race. There was a lot of people that tried to get off the front unsuccessfully. Audrey Cordon Rago probably had the most successful break of the day solo on the Tom Boone and Tienberg climb and then all the way to the Ode de Quermont where the race really picked up steam. That's where a group of favorites, basically everyone we talked about in the podcast before, went off the front except Voss and Iwadoma. Both of them got dropped, fascinatingly. After that, on the Paderberg, Annemiek Van Vluten made her race-winning move and soloed to the finish. The group behind her was pretty uncooperative and was not able to bring her back and sprinted for second, where Lisa Brenauer won the sprint, followed by Grace Brown and then Elisa Longa-Borghini. So, let's get into it. I thought it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was boring, Um Obviously, I don't think it was like the most exciting race I've ever seen in my life. But, I mean, a lot still happened, I guess. I mean, it was a funny one. Like, I feel like the teams that would have been expected to do the most didn't really. Um, SD works, I guess. I mean, Anna put in a huge effort over, is it the Quamont she did that? can't remember now it feels like ages ago mm-hmm. um, she pretty much got on the front like on many of the big climbs she was on the front I was really impressed um with Sarah Roy um she like when Audrey was off the front she did she got dropped so many times on every single climb and she got back up got back onto the front just drilled it and like basically brought her back um and then, yeah, Anna came through and she sort of caused that major split um, towards the end. Um, so I guess she was like integral in that way, but I don't think SD Works really made much of an appearance. And when Anamique went, it wasn't like a classic, like, oh, she's gone, that's it, the race is over from like 40Ks out or more. It was still a bit touch and go for a while. And then I, I just don't think she's she's got that huge advantage that we we've seen she i'm pretty sure she went on the canaryberg right yeah she did she yeah. tried to go on the canaryberg and she was and everyone was kind of matching her so she was like okay i'll wait yeah and you're right it was a little more touch and go than the classic anamique right away gets a minute and then the last 13k is just uh, i've gotten up and walked away it was mm-hmm. really close for a while it looked really well, close when she, when she went on the Paderberg. And she went around the corner, like just with the camera angle. I thought it's not that big a gap. It was four to five seconds. That was it. And it could have gone anyway, right? It held just at six seconds for quite a while. And then 
yeah, I don't know. I was pretty confident. I was saying to Hannes, oh, no, she doesn't have a big enough gap. Like, look who's behind her. Um, I was sure that this would come back, actually. Uh, yeah, from what I saw, I was actually interested um, from how, what I saw was that the bunch going into the Canary Berg probably wasn't as big as it has been in other occasions. So it, it probably was quite a fast-paced race um, going into that last 60K. Um, Anamik attacked twice on the Canary Berg, but it wasn't an all-out crazy Anamik attack. She looked like she was really softening everyone up, testing everybody else, having a look. And it was interesting because then... In the past, I would have put money on the fact that she would have definitely attacked on the Koisberg going out of Ronza, and she didn't. Mm. And I thought, mm, she's actually being um, really um, careful, I think, with her attacking that day. And I think she must have known that she wanted to give one big attack either on the Quermont or the Paderberg. And, yeah, in hindsight, you could say that she'd planned it really to go all out on the Paderberg once everyone was already on their knees. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting that she didn't attack that many times and I think that was on purpose. Mm. And can we just talk about those final kilometres and her bike position for a moment? She, she looked, no, like, no, I just want to say, like... <laughs> the sports science segment. No. No, like, I mean, I'm not the one that knows everything about position, but, um, again, back when she was on a Scott bike, she just looked smoother and more comfortable. I wouldn't say she she looks beautiful on the bike like Anna Vanderbregen, but she was riding, like, a pretty big gear. She looked uncomfortable. The bike almost looked too big for her. So I was just amazed, actually, in the end how she time-trialed away on that thing. That's just, I'm putting it out there, just as a side note. <laughs> Go back to tactics now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe boring is not the right word. Maybe frustrating is a better word because that group of favorites that behind that was behind her was just so many strong riders that I know if each of them had just put in 10%, not even 5% more effort, I feel like they could have brought her back. I mean, it was only a 10 second gap for what, 11 kilometers. And so it felt to me that 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 was what was making me frustrated with the race, which after the race, Elisa Longborghini said that she was getting word from the car not to work because Lisa Brenauer was in that break. And Lisa Brenauer is clearly sprinting really well at the moment and was an out-and-out favorite to win from that break. But there's still so many tactics that can happen in the final three kilometers of a race if they'd brought Anamik back. I mean... Elisa could have tried to attack. There could have been multiple people that would have tried to attack. It is interesting with SD Works. They had two riders in that break, and so did FDJ Novella Aquitaine Futuroscope. Marta Cavalli didn't really do much work. It was mostly Cecile Utrecht-Ludwig, and then Marta didn't really feature in the sprint at all. And, I mean, Demi and Anna Vanderbregen were both kind of rolling the front, but nobody was nobody was really putting in that much effort, which we don't know if that was because they were tired after a long, like brutal race, or if that was that Anamik is just a little bit, was just like a little bit stronger than everyone else, which is totally possible. She did win. Another thing we have to talk about is Voss and Iwadoma, because those are two riders that we thought would feature in the, in the finale of this race that got dropped on the Ode de Quermont and kind of looked like they were struggling before that as well. And Voss, it would have been a similar situation to Brenauer had Voss been in that group. But I'm curious if Niwadoma's ride on the Wednesday race really affected her for Flanders. If that, what do you guys think? Well, of that? I think going back to what Gracie was saying, and Voss did say in an interview, it was a really hard race. Now, from the spectator's point of view, maybe we thought it wasn't the hardest race, but then again, yeah, we only saw the final yeah exactly. If we watched from start to finish. It probably would have been a much different viewing experience. But like Gracie said, at least the year I raced it, there was a huge group going into the Canaryburg. Like I was even still there. Um, and, yeah, this time it was a more select group. So it could be just the fact, yeah, you can have an off day at Flanders too. Um, and when Anna Vanderbregen is setting the pace on the Quermont and you're already cooked, then 
yeah. I mean, as for, for Cassia, how many late races has she lined up in this spring already? Could just be a case that... More than Anna Vanderbregen and Anna Meek. Yeah, so it, it could be a case that she was just a little bit more fatigued um, and going back to it was a really hard race. That's just my opinion, but yeah. Yeah, you wonder if the effort that she put in on um, in Dwar's Door Vlanderen to follow Annemiek's wheel might have been the one she could have saved for Flanders, but I guess doesn't necessarily work like that. No. Either. She said, yeah, she said, I think the only reason that I am kind of harping on this is because Niwadoma's been knocking on the door of being one of the best in the sport for many years at this point, and she's always been up there, and it's been beautiful to watch, but also frustrating because we know that she could win more at least i i feel this way and her effort in dwarves or vandalin she said after the finish that she was spent and with flanders being the biggest race of the spring with no perry roubaix you'd think okay if you're if you're digging a hole that deep and a lot of other top riders sat outdoors um so i think that's the only reason that i find that whole situation a little bit fascinating from like a director point of view because I feel if I'd been directing Canyon Stram I probably would have sat Kasha out of that race yeah maybe (laughs) so but she did line up in it and then I can imagine being in her mindset in the race when Anamik went she matched her it was incredible like and she went really hard that was an Anamik attack and um only Cassia could go with it and then they still have 30 k's to go so when you're swapping turns with a former world time trial champion for 30Ks, um, that's got to hurt. And, again, Anamika just come off a training camp. She hasn't been racing a ton. So um, that was definitely for her just a warm-up race and to test the legs. So, yeah, maybe if, if Dwaz had ended up as a different sort of race and she hadn't done a 30K breakaway with Anamika and Vluden, it could have been different. But, you know... She, she's experienced enough now that she would be the one sort of saying to the team as well, I want to do these races. Like this is the preparation I want for Flanders. Um, and hence why so many of these other riders we've seen sitting out. So it just comes down to that. She, she's not a new rider. Um, and it's just tough luck. Yeah. And often you see uh, Cassia isolated as well in some of these tougher finals. So she does have to do a lot of work and mentally that's pretty draining as well. Um, I have to say that Tiff actually had an awesome ride in support of her in Flanders this year. I think we're, we're seeing her coming back to her old self again, which is pretty cool. Like she did heaps of work for Cassia on Sunday. So I don't know. I think it, the spring is one of those beasts where it's just a recipe and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you just get one ingredient wrong and when you're really race fit, you just want to keep racing and it's really hard to decide whether to do that race or two before the big one because sometimes it really does help you and sometimes it can just be that little bit too hard and you just never really know how it's going to work out. Like it could be a really like one year I raced uh, Dwarfs of Vlanderen and it was really wet and cold and I was super fit and I just got a bit too cold, especially after the race and it just kind of wrecked me and tipped me over the edge. Going into that, it was the best plan. So sometimes you just have to cop it a bit <laughs> and uh, accept that you made decisions the best you could at the time. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. Your legs run out. <laughs> it's a great buildup for the Ardennes, which come run one right after the other and are always a favorite for Kasha. So in that sense, it might be better off in the long run, but we won't know until we until we get to the Ardennes. Should we move on to a couple less savory conversations from Flanders yes so (laughs) we'll start with we'll start with the first one which is you know the the bottle throwing thing so in the men's race Mikel Schar got disqualified for throwing his bottle to fans in the women's race so did Borghese and she's on a smaller team and she what the disqualification for the bottle throwing that's one thing but I think we should talk about the fact that she got fined more than Annemiek Van Vluten won in prize money. <laughs> so I think yeah. they actually, in the end, brought it down. They did. 
They did bring it down. But they initially, but down, after so. after it was highlighted, like if no one had said anything, it would have stayed at 500 Swiss francs for throwing a bottle on, as a continental rider. Like that's probably the entire budget for that race for the team. Yeah. And she said uh, afterwards that she felt like a criminal for the for the punishment of throwing the bottle and that she didn't even think about it. And I think all, all of us can kind of, we've all been in bike races. Like you just kind of do things without, especially when you're in a bike race like Flanders, you're like riding flat out. They, we've been throwing our bottles for years and years. And even if the rules were announced prior to this and they came into play like the day before, it's still second habit, which is what happened to Shar in the men's race. But I think when it comes to this conversation, I saw something on Twitter that was really interesting that I thought that we could discuss is the women make so much less. There is less prize money. Everything is just less for the women. But the fines and every, and all of the rules and stuff are all equal across the board. That's something that, I mean, I wasn't really aware of. I'm not surprised at all, but I wasn't really aware of it until, until Borghese... Well, clearly the UCI is taking a stand on equality, right? <laughs> we pick on the UCI while they ask for it. <laughs> they do. And also this whole environmental thing is like, I mean, Lauren, you'll know you work in this kind of sector, but like the the focus is very much on like, you know, throwing gel wrappers and all that. It's bad for the environment, of course it is, but there's bigger fish to fry in terms of that. It's almost a little bit of like greenwashing well look it, it, it is it's 100% greenwashing um I read the article obviously about this whole situation and I spoke with the UCI a month ago about their action plan their strategy for 2030 that's coming into play in June so they couldn't say too much in a typical UCI way but I had some really interesting questions um I came away from the interview with nothing to be honest but for me, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, littering, yes, single-use plastic, terrible thing. We need to address that on a team's level as well. So how, as a sport, are we going to address single-use plastic? All our gels come in wrappers and everything. Sometimes, um, as you know, when you're doing a long race and you're shoving all your gels in your pocket and you forget which pocket has the gels in it and you reach in to grab a new gel or a bar, sometimes you fling one out accidentally that happens i don't know if that's what happened to that guy that was fine for dropping a wrapper of the rally kyle murphy got disqualified from gp enduring for that exact thing like he went to pull a gel out of his pocket and a second one fell as he was grabbing the first one and he got disqualified. so my my big thing is it's great to take a stand on littering and single-use plastic um etc but if we, what, what I'm really curious to see, and I'm actually going to wait until June they come out with this strategy, is what is their stand going to be in terms of sponsorship? When you have someone like Ineos sponsoring one of the biggest teams in the world, and what does Ineos do? What is their environmental impact? Then we could go into um, just our carbon footprint as a sport. Um, are they going to be put, putting pressure on teams to go electric? Um, are they going to restructure the calendar so it's more efficient and we're not driving all over the freaking continent for bike races? But no, instead the UCI are focusing on these smaller issues to, I don't know, stamp their authority and um, make it look like they, they care about the issue, but th there's more pressing issues that need to be addressed. And then we can lead on to the next issue with... <laughs> It's Brock, how you pronounce it? Yeah. Brock. Brock. Yeah. So I don't, honestly, don't care. Don't think he's <laughs> the right to have his name pronounced the right. But way. I think this is a perfect point to lead on that they're they're finding writers for what, in my eyes, are, are minor offences in a sense. Um, you know, expelling a rider from a race for for dropping a wrapper, which okay, we do want to stop littering, but maybe it was unintentional from what the writer is saying, yet we have this whole bigger issue when it comes to ethics that they seem to just, you know, it's six months ago already 
and somehow uh, writer's littering is, is more pressing than having a man who's been accused of sexual abuse still racing. And I'll let Amy jump in on this one. <laughs> Let's lay out the facts. So he asked riders to send him photos of themselves in their panties and bra and bikini. But the UCI Ethics Commission didn't actually say sexual harassment. They said harassment. So I'll just leave that there. And yeah, so he was found guilty in October. The whole process has taken like 18 months or something. Yeah. It, it, It started, the first kind of news of this started to come out in April of 20. 2020 yes so actually yeah it's a year but the whole like the complaints were made earlier than that obviously and he he said that he he had asked for he didn't say he'd never asked for for photos i mean there's text messages and and pictures so it's kind of hard for him to argue against that Mm -hmm. but he did say it was for professional reasons which i mean yeah sure mate whatever you say come on yeah yeah so basically what what we're talking about in terms of being related to flanders is that before the race started flanders classic classics who runs all of the flanders races requested that he not be at the race and they actually have no authority to ban him from being at the race it's up to the uci and the disciplinary commission at this point and belgian cycling and any buddy who runs a race they can't do anything about suspending him they they have no say but flanders classics asked that he not be the director of their race yeah and so i mean he didn't so that's good but after this kind of blew up the uci said that the disciplinary commission does have the power to provisionally <laughs> suspend Braca, and they haven't which is kind of fascinating since it's a arm of the of the UCI and they're kind of it seems there's very little communication or cooperation going on within them with this statement I mean it felt kind of like whoever made it through the disciplinary disciplinary commission under the bus a little bit um but this was kind of a something around Flanders that we're all sick of talking about at this point um between Braca and Van Gansen and whatever might come out in the future. I mean, the, I have a really hard time. This is this is why I pick on the UCI so much. I mean, their rules about super tucks and puppy paws are whatever. But the reason that I'm so hard on them personally about stuff like that is because they let stuff like this fly. And it is just so wrong. It is so yeah. wrong in a... In a world that is post-Me Too movement, where women are finally standing up for ourselves after years and years and years. And yeah, so I don't know, Gracie, do you have anything to say? Just because you're on the, T- you're, you, you work with the TCA and, and we're one of the founding members. So I feel like for you, this might be something that you are able to talk a little bit more about without, you can't actually like tell us anything from the TCA standpoint, because I think that there, there's a little bit of, um, there's a confidentiality thing on that level, but I don't know. Do you have anything? Yeah, I feel the same as you. It's just unbelievable really that some of this stuff either takes so long to kind of come to a head or to have any kind of outcome, whether good or bad, um, especially in this era of the me too stuff, like pretty much every major continent has had, something really big happening. There's big stuff happening in Australian politics at the moment in terms of women's sexual harassment. And it's just the environment is just ripe now for this, for the um, institutions to stand up in the right way and, and be like, okay, well, what can we do to change this culture instead of just brushing it under the carpet and making it women's problems when it's actually men's problems. Um, we've We've got a really great ethics officer at TCA and she wrote a really um, interesting rec- uh, paper. It was kind of an open letter, I guess, to the 
UCI, it was just recommendations about how they can handle um, harassment cases better and really put more care in for the victims rather than um, putting the protection for the perpetrators, which is really what's happening now. And personally, from a, a non-TCA point of view, I just I can't help but think that they are avoiding that witch hunt of like, well, if we set the precedent for this man or this other man, then they're going to come after all of us. And that's really telling to me that why would they be scared in the first place? Why wouldn't they want to change the culture for good? Why are they why are they scared of giving us more power? I don't know. That's just my personal grievances there in this whole kind of um, theme, no matter what, if we're talking about cycling or politics or anything, it's kind of like, it's not a witch hunt. This is just not acceptable. Well, going on from that point, perhaps it's a fact like this is, these certain cases have drawn a, a lot of media attention, right? But if we think back to Bridie O'Donnell's blogs years ago about her experiences in Italian teens, how many writers have actually potentially contacted the UCI um, and nothing's been done? Yeah, who so else are they maybe, protecting? Exactly. So I think that's a really valid point, Gracie. Um, it could open up. I mean, look what happened in Hollywood, for example. So that whole industry in the past couple of years. Um, Unfortunately, the balance of power in cycling keeps us down. And I mean that in the sense of you should be grateful to be an athlete. And that's what we are women. We as women are told you probably wouldn't have one professional male rider say that they've been ever been told that. No, that's, that's true. And I even catch myself still saying that sometimes I was really privileged to have been um, in that position. And then I think back to a lot of things and I was like, no, because my friends who just continued on, finished university and went on to get jobs, I'm pretty sure they were never treated in some of the ways I was treated in certain teams. Um, And it, it goes on and on. But, yeah, it is that very much. But as women, I think we're we're told so often to be grateful um and that you know uh i don't want to go down the rabbit hole (laughs) a deep rabbit hole highlight as well so gracie mentioned the um recommendations that the ethics officer made to the um ethics commission at the uci one of the main sort of things with that is um victims aren't kept updated on what's happening. So they make a complaint and then the only person who's kept in the loop is the accused in that situation. And they basically only find out, the victims only find out via basically like press releases from the UCI what's actually happening, just to give you an idea of exactly how unfit for purpose it is at the moment. Yeah, they're not They're not so. giving... The victims are never given a timeline and they are never given information before the general public are given that information. And that's really, that's a second trauma, really, for the victim. Yeah. Cycling has never had a Me Too movement, right? And Mm. there's no doubt in my mind that if this was to crack open at one point, that the stories that we would hear from some women who have stepped away from the sport would be absolutely horrifying. Oh, I, yeah. Some of the, the things I've heard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the culture within cycling and the fact that it is very much a male-run sport, there's the odd woman here or there, but, I mean, it's a male sport, even on the women's side. Not all men are are bad. We There's some really great guys out there that work in women's cycling, but in the years past, there has been before now even and and mostly i feel like in the 90s and and uh the 2000s there could have there was some really horrible stuff going on behind the scenes of teams that it has to come out at some point it's going to come out i mean the uci and the powers that be in cycling kind of trying to sweep it under the rug as long as they can they're not gonna be able to do that forever this is going to blow up in their face at one point it has to so I mean, it's just until something changes, we're going to keep talking about it because we're women 
we love this sport. We want it to be a safe space for the young women who are coming up and coming into the sport. And the only way for anything to change is if we keep harping on about it, because clearly nothing is happening at the top. That's why women's cycling needs the TCA and all the work they do. Should we get into Shell the Priest a little bit before we talk about the TCA mentoring program? We don't have there. I don't have a ton to say about Shell the Priest, but um, it's it's not a world tour race. We usually don't get into the non-world tour races as much as the world tour races. Otherwise, we would be talking about, well, you know, in COVID times, we wouldn't really be talking about that many more races. There's not really a ton going on. But first ever Shell the Priest for the women, the Flanders Classics have been very vocal about having a women's equivalent for every single one of their men's races, um, which is awesome. Just means more one day epic races for the women that will hopefully grow into world tour sometime in the future. The Flanders Classics, uh, people have said that in the future they want these races to grow and it was snowing for like three days leading up to shelter priest i was cold just watching it <laughs> but lorena Weebus took her her first win of the season and the first win for team dsm um the sprint the whole race was just looked horrendous there were so many crashes there were so many horrible crashes the one where somebody hit like a pothole on the side and there was just like a spray of water and then there were riders like riding into the woods and there was like on either side of the cobbles and it was just total chaos and uh i haven't heard if anyone did get seriously injured in any of those crashes so it's not funny but it was it was like when you were watching you were like oh <laughs> anyway <laughs> so yeah any anything to add about shell the place Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really cool to see another race for the sprinters because I think a few weeks back we were saying, um, you know, with uh, Depana, it was a, a day missed out for the sprinters when, when Grace did that epic solo in the last 10K. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to see another race on the calendar in Belgium in particular. And this one, like they had all those... Um, classic Belgian, Holland, like Dutch weather sort of thrown at them. So, I mean, I, I love watching that racing and w when you're in good form, it's, it's fun to, to race. And, yeah, it was, it was cool to see uh, DSM finally get that big win. Um, in terms of the sprint, I think, Gracie, did you manage to catch the race? Um, to be honest, I actually haven't watched the race yet, so I was just trying to keep up with it a little bit on social media, but I did miss a lot of it. But one thing I want to add is it was an extreme weather day, so there was snow in the morning and there was some discussions within the teams that morning of whether they should enact that extreme weather protocol. And it was really great to see some of the Cyclist Alliance team ambassadors um, speak for their team and say whether their team was keen to race or not. So there's a lot of much more improved communication now within the teams. And now we have Christine Majeris as part of the safety committee with the UCI, which is a really awesome thing to have a female in that group as well. She's um, a very outspoken rider and has some really great kind of opinions about safety and women cycling in general. So there's definitely some much better representation there than there's ever been in terms of the voices of cycling on some of those decisions that need to be made quickly on the day. Yeah, they didn't have um, a sign on because of the, it was snowing, I think, a bit when they were supposed to be doing that. And then, <laughs> so. This weather, the climate change. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And Emma Norris got second again. Yes. Oh. Yeah. oh, man. I thought she had it for, for like a, <laughs> but she went way too early. I mean, she was going, she, I was watching her sprint and I was like, girl, if you just had held that for like, 50 meters so sarah roy hit out. out she she let out the sprint is that correct and then bike exchange went really early as well yeah, yeah. and then she faded to about seventh it looked like weebs yeah it was a really good sprint by her and she had a, a decent win if that makes sense it wasn't mm -hmm. close so yeah. no she came flying yeah it's good to mm -hmm. see her back to her that you know two years ago when she really burst onto the scene and was just dominating so fast in the sprint. So, yeah. I mean, she looked really good at the, um, healthy aging tour mm. when she, before she had that crash in the, in the finish of the first stage. I mean, she was, the crash basically happened cause she was going 
way faster than Alice and like ran into Alice's back wheel. <laughs> so I think that she was, she's shown her form already this year, but just with the lack of sprint finishes in the women's, in the women's calendar, she's not been able to sprint for the win. So it was great to see her win and for DSM to take, I mean, their first win under their new team name and their first win of the year. So really good third place for Lisa Balsama as well. And Valcar. Mm-hmm. She's really riding super well. I mean, she's been really consistent so far in all of the sprints and even in the sprints that are behind the winners, like Trofeo Alfredo Binda. That was a really young podium um, when you think about it. So yeah. we're seeing this surge of like the young sprinters coming up now and this, this new generation, which is really exciting. All right. Should we move on to the TCA mentorship program and just Gracie in general? <laughs> we wanted to know how you're doing, but... First, let's talk about the mentor program with the TCA and what that's all about. Yeah, we, um, we're about to launch in the next month a, um, a revised version of our mentor program. So back pretty much when we started the Cyclist Alliance back in 2017, Carmen Small's baby was this mentor program and she was really enthusiastic about setting up and linking up riders, not just within teams, but within the peloton, depending on what their needs were. And so it was really quite informal, but we had some success with the pairings over the years and um, we could see that it had some really good potential. So um, uh, myself and Rose Hogeboom, which who's been our um, treasurer from almost the start as well, who's been a really big part of the Cyclist Alliance, but you don't hear her name as much. She also retired like I did last year from, from racing and both of us were in this transition period and it seemed like the perfect fit for us to kind of revive this mentor program because we were going through that phase of like what are we doing now with our lives (laughs) we're not racing anymore so it's nice to put all of our experience from the racing side of things and working with the cyclist alliance to then kickstart this program again we see a lot of value in pairing up riders depending on what their needs are and what their experience levels are where they come from um, um, and matching up riders from different teams, which is cool because it just opens up that nice supportive network and communication streams outside of your team. Sometimes you can go through years of only talking to your teammates and some of the interesting ideas and experiences don't get shared as much as they could be in women's cycling. And the whole point of the Cyclist Alliance is for a union. We're trying to unify everyone to work for the greater good in women's cycling and, and mostly that's for political and for safety reasons but it's also just to make it a, a nicer sport for everyone um, more supportive and to yeah improve everyone really just make it as much more professional as you can and we can see there's a lot more money in the sport now so everyone is really professional but there's still some layers there that can be improved and some of that comes through mentoring with really interesting pairings. Um, And another thing that we're really excited about is um, not just having paired up riders, mentors and mentees that are riders, but also riders that are thinking about retiring, what their transition plan looks like. So we'd like to pair up riders with recently retired riders and also industry professionals and and start a nice network of um, major brands really. So we're keeping some of these women in the sport there's not really that many opportunities for women to stay in cycling um, once they've finished racing. So how cool would it be if there was a job in almost every cycling brand as an intern for a retired cyclist to know that she could apply for or, I don't know, like it's really really cool to see the SD Works team having um, Anna and Chantal going into DS roles and They've known that for almost two years now. That's their plan. And it's really important to be um, kind of creating your plan before you've retired. That really makes the transition so much easier for you. And I think there's just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of intellect um, that could really add so much value to the cycling industry from some of these women that are really capable on the bike, but probably just as or even more capable off the bike. And to retain some of those people in our sport would be a really important step, I think, in um, sustaining and improving the sport long-term. That's true because uh, 
like you said, once you, you leave the sport, um, sometimes this feeling, you know, after the, the first few months where it's still fresh in people's minds, you almost feel forgotten if you step away and you're, you're not involved. And it's kind of like if, you, if you've been <laughs> in sport your whole life and you want to keep a finger on the pulse, you're, you're trying to find ways to stay engaged, but maybe it's not the right direction that you should be going in, but you just want to still feel a part and connected to it up in in roles that are unfulfilling or yeah it took me years to just find my feet and I sure would have benefited from um, pairing up with someone who's been there and done that and I I think the whole industry idea is fantastic because um, if you haven't been doing anything but cycling you definitely develop a lot of different skills that are translatable to all kinds of industries but it's just finding that that position somewhere. Um, and some people are just really well connected and go straight into roles and it seems to be easy for them. But if you're not, I don't know, I, I found myself just floundering around, grabbing at whatever could come my way instead of really thinking what was it that I wanted to do. So this is really a fantastic thing. And um, I'm just curious how it will work. So if you're planning on say retiring you're thinking okay 2022 will be my last year you can contact the TCA and then they'll you're going to have like a program in place something like that that you yeah. help the rider work through yeah we're creating a nice network of industry partners to um, be part of our program and ultimately our goal is to have these industry partners be able to offer potential opportunities to the right people and to foster some of those kind of relationships before the retirement actually happens so yeah um, ideally this rider that knows that she will retire in the next year or two will be able to start planning um, ahead what her transition was going to look like and who's going to help her in that journey or what job she might like to pursue uh, what network she needs to kind of hook herself into And also it'd be really great if she also wanted to be a mentor to a younger rider. So it's kind of a nice chain there. So we have young riders getting mentored by current experienced riders and some of those riders getting mentored from retired riders. So you could be someone that is a mentor and a mentee. Ultimately, I think that would be really nice to like have that nice flow there, not just be in one role, but kind of, be able to be on both sides, um, be helped and help and be able to be able to hook into a network that could potentially give you a job within the sport once you've retired. (laughs) Well, this is really awesome. I'm excited about it. And it's going to roll out in the next month you'll be announcing. Yep. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks we can finally get it off the ground. It's taken us a little bit longer for various reasons, but we really want to get it started before the year goes (laughs) How, how do you decide how to match riders up within the sport? Um, we'll have a, um, a, sh- a survey, which is kind of the application form, and that'll give us a lot of information about that person and their needs. And uh, Rose and I will do the, the pairing. So it's a little bit of pressure on us to get it right. I'm sure we w- won't get all of them right, but um, we, we aim to give everyone 12 months within that, that couple or the pair and they can revise it and change for the following year if they still want to stay involved. Um, yeah, and they can also give us preferences too if they know someone else that wants to be in the program. So it's not going to be really regimented and we're, we're going to have some flexibility there. But I think just from the small cohort of people that we are expecting to be involved, I think it should be relatively easy to pair people up in appropriate matches. And you have to be a member of the TCA to participate in the mentor yes program. that's right it's um one of the many benefits we can offer members <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing with your transition yeah it's uh it is hard um overall I'm good um but watching Flanders on the weekend was a bit painful actually which is interesting but um I think most of the races I've watched I I don't miss most of it, but I think the things that I do miss is being really fit. That's a pretty awesome feeling. Um, I think 
just being really self-focused. I think you just are so used to always being in a state of progress, more or less, and always just having one singular focus. That's a lot of pressure and it's tough and it's progress isn't linear. So, of course, you're going to have bad days and bad weeks and sometimes bad years. But in general, it's, it is about progress and it is about you. So when it's suddenly not anymore and I'm not really good at one thing anymore, I'm just kind of trying to figure out what else I'm good at and I'm not particularly good at anything else right now. I have the potential to be, but I, yeah, I just miss being really good at one thing and I miss progressing all the time and I miss, I miss feeling special. So it's nice to be on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You are still special. (laughs) And how is like, how is it now? This is the most interesting thing. The day I decided to stop, um, my, my, my finish was a bit different to yours, but I remember waking up the next day and I was like, I don't have to train today. Like if I want to go swimming this morning, I'll go swimming or I'll go to the beach and have a coffee and go for a walk with my dog or something. How, how are you finding what I call normal life, which is just, I see you've been getting on the mountain bike again. For those that don't know, Gracie was a really good mountain biker before she came across to road and we're all like, who the fuck is this girl? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely... I have no shortage of things to do. Like I just, I'm the, I'm the kind of person that just wants to be good at everything. Like I want to try all the sports. I want to be good at all the sports. I want to try all of the creative things. I want to be good at them too. So I'm never bored. Look, I've, I've been running a bit, which is cool because running's just so efficient. It's, it's bloody hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have the flow that um, cycling does, but it's certainly a good workout and it's fun once you start not looking like a duck when you're out there (laughs) um yeah I just I'm aiming to do some skiing this winter so I'm trying to do some strength stuff and prep for that so I don't hurt myself too badly um and it is fun like to just be so free on weekends that if a friend says let's go do this you can just say okay (laughs) and you don't have to worry about your training plan or getting sore or injured or whatever like so it, it's certainly been nice to have that freedom. And I had a pretty fun summer of doing random stuff and adventures and holidays and also not doing stuff, just being lazy. And I actually was just really tired for a few months. I, got, I, re- I just wiped myself out completely from the angst of last year. It's actually taken me until recently to actually feel a bit more normal again. So it was actually good that I, I didn't actually do much exercise at all except for just basic stuff every day or two just more for mental health reasons and I have to ask have you gotten into like I see a trend with a lot of people who um stop with professional sport going into not the crossfit but like the circuit training joining up like an f45 that sort of thing have you have you gone down that track kind of like miffy <laughs> no no um it's tempting but I've actually got I was a personal trainer back when I was young. So I, I've got some gym stuff at home and I'm reasonably self-motivated so I can just do gym stuff at home. And because I don't have a job at the moment, I'm a bit loath to pay for any kind of gym membership. So <laughs> I, all my exercise I do is free except for the fact that it's not free because all like my mountain bike is expensive. <laughs> and, um, I want to buy another mountain bike because all my friends have, trail bikes now and I want to do the big jumps and my list of my wish list of toys is just so long that I'm not going to pay for a gym membership I'm just going to buy some cool stuff instead (laughs) I I like that thought process that's the thing when you stop right like there's no more worrying about getting injured or anything so the world is kind of your oyster yep not that you not that you really had to worry so much about like <laughs> crashing off your mountain bike as much as I did. <laughs> yeah, I my skills are not too bad, but I definitely need some improvement again. I was really lucky I went to Derby uh, a couple weekends ago, which is uh, quite world famous now. It's a mountain bike park down in Tasmania and some old friends of mine have been begging me for years to come visit them and go riding down there and the trails there were just absolutely insane. Like, and I was riding the blind, but these 
people knew what they were doing. So I was just following their lines and trying not to poo my pants. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't crash, so that's a win. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that you're you're doing all right. A lot of people have a hard time with the transition. And I'm sure some days are better than others, but Yeah, I was pretty aware that it was gonna be a tough year, so it's probably in some ways like it's a nice surprise that it's not as hard as I thought it might be but there's definitely been some days where you just feel pretty shitty but it's more just like I don't know what I'm going to do next and that's the point of this year I'm just having what I like to call a a gap year in my 30s which is pretty great (laughs) but it's also like when you're a, a, a certain type of person that has achieved a lot and likes to achieve a lot you feel guilty for not achieving so it's really Almost every day I have to tell myself it's okay to not be good at something and it's okay to not be productive and it's okay to not know what you're going to do next. But, yeah, like I said, I have to tell myself that almost every day so I can still just enjoy having fun and and have a fun gap year like I would if I was 18, just go do cool shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to ask, Gracie, are you going to be, are you a mentor yourself or do you have plans to be a mentor? Uh, Yeah, I am unofficially mentoring someone already at the moment which is pretty fun um and I definitely want to do more of it in the future so kind of just learning that side of things um with someone that's really cool um but yeah I I think I have a lot to offer and a lot of experience so um I definitely put a lot of work into this program and hopefully it it goes okay this year and hopefully I can help a few people along the way that was always something I dreamed of is sharing some of my insights and experience to the next wave. So this is a really great opportunity to do that. Okay. So people just need to keep an eye out on the socials for TCA. In the coming yeah, we'll weeks. do a couple of press releases, definitely shared on the socials. And if you're a Cyclist Alliance member, you will get an email to prompt you to take the survey as an application process. So, well, there'll be no shortage of prompts for the people out there if they're interested. And Abby, this is your chance to give the extra plug for the TCA and getting the Velo Club members to do a little donation. (laughs) Man, the Velo Club members already like really stepped it up. That was incredible. That was so cool. Thanks, everybody. That was amazing. (laughs) It was really very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that the Velo Club members have really gotten behind the TCA, which is amazing to see because obviously we're really thankful for the Velo Club members for supporting us and then for them to turn around and be supportive of the organizations that we support that are supporting the women. It's a great little circle that we have going on. I think if anyone from the industry is listening to this podcast, definitely reach out to Gracie and see if you want to get involved in this program because I think there's a lot of value here and You know, I was always told um, that people want to hire athletes because there are certain qualities that you that you have and you develop over time in that pursuit of excellence. So um, well done to the TCA. (laughs) Thanks. Especially women cyclists as well. Like um, there's that paradox, I guess, of a lot of people come into it later. They've already like had education or worked a bit which is a bad thing because it means like that's just part of the fact that there's not a great development process and not great pay and stuff but at the same time yeah it's this paradox of people already have experience and life experience outside of the sport whereas for the men maybe it's not so much the case so and a lot of women have degrees and stuff already I know which is really cool it's Mm -hmm. although I, yeah. I, a trend that I notice amongst um, some of my friends that have degrees in race bikes is once they've started bike racing, they no longer want to do the degree that they went to school for because yeah. they've found this they found this new passion that they. <laughs> I was about to say that too. I don't know like what the actual stats are on that is, but it definitely seems like anecdotally that's a bit of a trend of people, yeah, having it kind of that punctuation of cycling of their life just taking that different pathway so I think um, women certainly are more educated and we can back that up with our survey data Um, and that just goes to show that they 
are a smart group of people in the first place and that would be even more suitable to working in the bike industry in any aspect afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm sure a lot of them would be stoked if they could stay involved in cycling rather than go back to the original plan. I think not following the path that your degree was supposed to take you down is common throughout yes. life, <laughs> not just in cycling. I think most people, a lot of people are like, why did I do that? I'm completely in a different job now than I studied for. Yeah, well, Ashley Moorman is an engineer and I don't think she'll go back to that at all. And neither will Carl. No, she's a chemical engineer. Yeah. She wants to start her own women's team. And, and run a cycling yeah. hotel. <laughs> not... Not chemical <laughs> engineering at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe some structural. The best yeah. one, though, for me was, um, is it Lizzie Banks was in her fi- final year of being a doctor? I was like, final year, final mm-hmm. year, you're almost yeah. there, and you're being a bike racer. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> no, but that's pretty awesome. And I saw that a tweet that, like, Joe Razzle's doing the complete opposite. So she had her whole career as a professional athlete, and now she's embarking on this journey so it's like switched um but i love those stories and we need to talk more about them yeah katie hall did something similar she was in she was i think getting her phd for like something crazy some kind of some she was in a lab all the time mixing things and then she (laughs) took up bike racing pretty late in her in her life well comparatively to you know europeans and then she is now going to school for physiotherapy. So very different, <laughs> very different switch. It's really, inter- there's so many, man. It would be, it'd be really cool to talk to these women and actually get to hear from them the transition, like why, why they jumped, so. Yeah, and I think um, like I started with a science background um, and then did sport. And then to try and go back to doing science has been quite difficult because like it's, different part of your brain you're using I can't even remember now how to write a decent scientific report um but then I remember like there's are a few female athletes who retired before me who had done their degree in environmental science and did incredible things like Sharon Laws did amazing things and I had interesting conversations with her um years ago it would be interesting to talk with people like that who um then go back to their previous studies as well and say, well, you know, I took these steps. This is what I had to do to then sort of get back in that flow. Taking on study in your 30s is, is quite daunting. Um, yeah, I'm finishing my it. science degree right now and it's bloody hard. <laughs> I'm it glad is, I'm not, right? I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not starting it right now because finishing it is hard enough. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I think that's all we got. For today, Gracie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, it's really awesome to learn what the TCA is doing because I think in order to support organizations like this, it's important to know exactly what they're doing. So it's awesome to get to hear it right from you and that we have this kind of connection to to something like the TCA. What makes cycling so amazing is the connection that we have not only to the athletes, but also to, to groups like the TCA. So thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, this is a really great platform to have um, interesting discussions and with like-minded women. <laughs> and also, thanks for making me feel special. Please call me back. <laughs> no, you're welcome anytime to join the panel. Yeah, anytime. Seriously, <laughs> I'm feeling very uh, forgotten and irrelevant already. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be back. We'll be back next week to dive into the Ardennes. We got the next big race on the calendar is Amstel Gold. So. We have, uh, is it, we've got the one, yeah, it's Robots not, appeal. yeah, but it's yeah. not a, it's not a world tour race. It's not world tour, but it will be good to watch. Cause that it was a good it race to watch last race. year. Yeah. Yes. This is yeah. where Grace Brown really like, it was post, um, Liege Bass on Liege when she was chasing down Lizzie Dagnan off the front and came oh so close to catching her. And then, uh, and then went out and won Brabant's appeal. So I just realized that Amstel's next Sunday. That's so soon. I thought it was ages. No. We won't mention what was meant to be this weekend. No. We're going to get excited <laughs> in October for that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
I'm selfishly kind of relieved yeah. I don't have to watch Ruby this weekend after watching Flanders last weekend. <laughs> I need more time. I need more time, my poor heart. <laughs> You've got six months, Gracie. You've got six uh, months. <laughs> no, I really want Ruby to happen for the women finally. But it would have hurt to watch though, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it it's really like taking its fair share of blunt trauma (laughs) the women's roubaix (laughs) just over and over and over getting pushed back and pushed back it will happen though eventually (laughs) we just have to believe (laughs) that's what they said about equality no (laughs) (laughs) sorry